Hey there, Sean. Hey, Pierce. How's it going? It's pretty okay. All right. That means it's time for another episode of the It's Pretty Okay podcast. Let's do it. Let's start the show. All right. It is just the two of us this week. It feels a little bit like we're we're hearkening back to the the single digit episode days. Um and we we often have some kind of archetypes for the pod depending on on who's available in a given week. Um and you know the the most uh, the most notable one is that if it's you and me and Kevin, uh, we go into sports boys mode. And mm-hmm. I, in in some ways, like I, I obviously it is best when we have everyone together. But you and I have been looking forward to the chance to do this particular pod for quite a while now. So in in that regard, and only in that regard, I am actually pretty jazzed that Kevin and Max are not here. Um I have have, yeah. Because we are the soccer boys. And comparatively, yes. Yes. Out of out of the four of us, for sure. And we have been talking for it's probably been a year, if not more than that, about mm-hmm. doing a watch along episode, but uh, specifically watching the 2011 Champions League final between Manchester United and Barcelona. Uh, so, uh, warning ahead, this is going to be a soccer podcast. So, yes. do with that information what you will. Um, but, but we are sufficiently committed to to doing this that we had to we had to use the site daily motion which is i it is sufficiently far down the ranks of like video watching sites that there isn't even an app on roku tvs for it um so uh so yeah that that's that's a shame though because uh you miss out on some pretty interesting stuff yeah and i don't even know why could we have found it elsewhere maybe but i think you get the fullness of the experience with with watching it there um but but yeah it it felt it, it it felt good and like right there i do want to point out you know we we watch stuff before but usually it's it's kind of silly stuff we watched something. I took two pages of notes on it. I reread p- a part of a book, and I watched another video today in terms of research. I, I usually do research for this podcast in a way that you all don't, but even for me, that was a lot. I took six pages of notes, which is coincidentally the same number of pages worth of notes that I have taken uh, combined in the entire previous history of the show. Yeah, and I think I think we we should lead off and express the why why we took so many pages of notes, why this is important. Um, so part of this comes from uh, Jonathan Wilson's book, Inverting the Pyramid, um, which is I, I'd say like the 
if not the most, one of the most consequential books on soccer tactics. And it was written, oh, yeah. I, th I think, uh, originally probably around 2015, 2016. Um and it's 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 just great. It tells the history of soccer through tactics, and and uh, you know this is a sportsy thing we're going to talk about here, but it's also philosophical because it's it's how you know leaders approach solving the same problem, which is how do I win this game? How do I defeat my opponent, uh, my team versus their team? Um, you know it. it you change things just a little bit, it could have been a war book. I mean, very easily, like another British man writing another war book. Um, <laughs> and and I think that I, watching the game and wanting to see it, that really came through of ultimately the very last chapter of this book highlights this game um, because it, for I think Wilson and still for a lot of people, it's kind of the pinnacle of certain ideas about soccer that that have been evolving since the beginning of time and i think this um this match uh really puts puts a, a top on it in in a lot of ways yeah um so so the the stage here that we're, we're setting is um you know manchester united at this point is certainly the um the biggest club in english football and i think we should just go ahead and switch to football because it will probably be easier yeah. since we're incorporating all these other ideas that are coming from other countries and referencing stuff from books and and tv broadcasts in the uk um they you know they've uh, they're in some ways kind of synonymous with you know big important trophies they've got this iconic manager sir alex ferguson who is a uh blue-eyed purple-nosed scott uh as i noticed on in some of the many close-ups of him during this broadcast um who has led the team for for decades uh going up against barcelona which is in many ways like they are they are sort of the perfect endpoint for the Wilson book because, you know, uh, under their manager, Pep Guardiola, um, they arguably have like, uh, you know, they perfected a tactic in in and around the time that this game happened. This is one of his first seasons managing anywhere mm -hmm. it was also his last full season with barcelona before he would go on to um uh trophy laden terms at bayern munich in germany and now at manchester city in england um and it just there the incredible collection of talented players on display in this game is pretty staggering and it also matters that this is a rematch these two teams met mm -hmm. a little different roster composition um, but they met for the champions league final two years before this 
Um, but now they're playing again at Wembley Stadium in London. They are on yeah. English soil. The the home the home of football, as every English person will tell you 100 times, even after you have asked them to stop. Um, yeah. And and so in, in some ways, you know, this is one of those games that takes on like mythical proportions and feels like a, a battle for the soul of the game. Yeah. And, and that that soul, I think, is part of this is from how how Wilson portrays it and also mm-hmm. you know just dogged dogged ideas of football is like um there is Alex Ferguson who's probably the greatest English manager ever I mean I, I'm sure you could argue otherwise but like certainly one of the most accomplished I mean if you want mm-hmm. to you know Bill Shankly you could put in there but very very different very sure. different time period um but you know was at the helm for over 25 years won every trophy there was to win um but like definitely comes from a more i'd say pragmatic school and and you see that even in just the arrangement of the players in the field in this game you have you know his you know 442 which is as english as beans i think and then you have this um you know uh 433 of pep guardiola who which he is is something he employed as recently as the second half of this year's Champions League final. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is totally different in what they're trying to do. You have one one group which is uh uh you know Pep's team and that they I don't know what the possession was at the end of the game, but just just to let you know how how they got there, in only the 33rd minute. Um, after the first 10 minutes where Manchester United actually was the better team, um, in the 33rd minute, uh, Manchester United had completed 100 passes. Um, Barcelona had completed 265 and already had, I think, a 60 to, or like 60, uh, somewhere around 60, 40 in terms of possession. And, And so you have like, a very pragmatic group that's like, if we see an opportunity, we are going to try to directly as much as possible. It's being a little unkind, but pretty directly have an attempt on goal. And you have another team is like, you know, we will bide our time and find it. The way we build up to that is, is very smooth, very sublime possession of the ball through repeated short passes um, in, in the like. And it's just, it, it was such a, it is such a display of, you know, two two versions of the game, um, both successful. But in this moment, you saw well this kind of new age approach, which was really you know a thirty year old approach at that point, um, is just out outlasting that. And I mean, Alex Ferguson says that himself, and he says that um, no one's giving us a, hi- a nobody's given us a hiding like that, but they deserve it. They play the right way and they enjoy their football. They do mesmerize you with their passing. And we never really did control Messi, who I'd add parenthetically, is only 30, 23 years old in this game. And they say in the uh, towards the end of the game or when he ultimately scores that he's the uh, world's greatest footballer. He's 23 years old. And you could still have said that this year. But um, we never really did control Messi in my time as manager it's the best team I've faced. Here is, you know, no one could touch him for accomplishments over that 25 years, I don't think. And he said, Definitely not. this is the best team I have faced. 
Um, and he had a great team on his hands himself. They had just won the league in England and, you know, were phenomenal. That That is true. Uh, these, these teams came into the final having won their respective domestic leagues. Um, something that I thought was really interesting, just at, that doesn't really have anything to do with this game, uh, but, you know, we're at a, a sort of inflection point where there's a lot of talk about sort of the consolidation of money and power in the sport mm-hmm. uh, and and feeling like dynasties are going to develop. But this game happens amid a stretch uh, where there were three trebles in five years, uh, something that is basically unheard of now the fact that manchester city did it this year uh was was fairly bonkers um Mm -hmm. and in fact and four trebles in seven years because two of them were won by barcelona in the 0809 season when they beat united the first time and then a few years later in the 14 yes the 14 15 season uh when they had Neymar and, and Luis Suarez. Um, and, and I think yeah. I think that's interesting because, you know, you just said that. So I think one thing that sort of comes up in the broadcast and we realize now is that I believe the Champions League format has changed a little bit since then. So they play more games, which I I think. And, and so that has an impact on us. But, you know, Barcelona had just done this and they had beat the same great team two years prior. But but why is this game, you know, you mentioned it's the last, um, the last full season that Pep is coaching at Barcelona. Why is this game such the pinnacle? I mean, I, I have an idea, but I'm interested in yours. Wow. Um, well, in some ways, I think it's that, um, it's got something to do with, you know, the fact that you're beating this great historic power for a second time in three years, like truly cementing Guardiola's Barcelona as one of the all time great teams mm-hmm. in sports history. But that's that's like on a macro level, on a micro level. It's like a a changing of the guard. It's it's a it is a philosophical victory. I mean, you, you, that's I'm I'm glad you pointed out that inverting the pyramid is as much a a book about philosophy and sociology as it is a book about football because it is the triumph of. It's a triumph of a lot of things. It's a triumph of sort of offensive control of football that's oriented around offensive control in a way that, you know, English teams are sort of infamous, at least in this time period, for sort of lumping the ball up from the back, kicking it long up to the striker, who's usually a big fellow who plays with his back to the basket like a, a... post player in basketball and then 
the smaller, speedier fellows around him will try to like make runs off of that into the box. And this is very much not that. This is, you know, the ball is hardly ever at any one player's feet for more than a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also, in many ways, this is a, a victory of, you know, uh, player development. Um, yeah, you know, Barcelona is is sort of famous for having this incredible youth academy, and and um, you know, there's there was lots of fanfare. Not this game was not the the game in question, but there was lots of fanfare. There was one time where they started, I believe, eleven players who had all been products of La Masia, which is the mm-hmm. academy, but basically. Almost all of their most important players are players who came through the youth ranks at Barcelona. Lionel Messi, Xavi, Iniesta, Sergio Busquets, uh, Puyol, who only came into this game late, um, Victor Valdez. You know, I, so so there there are like eight hundred different answers. I, I guess. I'm I'm curious to know which which of the things you think is, is why this game was so momentous. Yeah, I mean you hit on that that like this this is a product of a lot of time. Um the, and the dynasty is not just those two the two trebles in three years. It is that this idea of of Cruyff and having the um the the youth academy and seeing that through um and and you know growing this and and having this idea and you know they they, there are points where where some of the leaders of this would mention it's like you know it's not it's not so much that we're better than everybody else we've just had a head start on this idea but you know for me part of that idea and um you know is captured uh by wilson and he's talking about the spain 2012 uh uh uh, Euros team, which is which is also an outgrowth of, of this team in many ways. Yeah. Um, uh, matches and tournaments were not won by the creation of chances, but by dominating possession to the extent that the opponent is stifled. Having thirty ch- have thirty chances and allow the opposition five, and there is a chance that the opponent will win. Have five and restrict the opponent to none. In the worst case scenario, is a penalty shootout. Um, it is a method attritional in ethos and yet proactive in a sense it is a logical end product of the philosophy of total football i'm not going to get into total football right now but like it is and and kind of pep guardioli talks about it is like it's you're one organism and you're all working together and you may have different skill sets but you are bought into what is going on you may have noticed from an episode of ted lasso that involved uh players being literally connected by ropes Oh, I don't know if I've seen that one yet, but, or maybe I did, but the the point is, is like, this is a concept and I had this frustrating realization and I wrote it in my notes, um, is that ultimately this is like, this is like a baseball team and baseball. I find somewhat frustrating because the defense starts with the ball in basketball. When you're on offense, you have the ball, but when you're on offense in baseball, you are awaiting the ball and what I mean by that a little bit more is that Barcelona is on offense. They are in attack and they have the ball. And this is inevitably to create chances. But at the same time, the it's not that the, the best 
defense is great offense. It's that your offense also expresses itself as defense. And to say that more directly is like they are totally their their goal is to have that possession and like focusing on chances in a way that I think is I just hadn't thought about it that much before of like they are there is a reason they do it and it's not just to score it is to deny others from scoring and it just feels like a an essential expression of that what they do in this game okay can i ask why uh, why this is not why, why your mind goes to baseball and not to a an american football team that has a dominant running game. That's what this um, is, because that's what this is to me. It's I, I understood that. I, I think where we're differing here is uh, that's a like, that's a very that's no, a very I, I, that's I a think very we're, good example. we're totally on the same page about one of the results of this offensive control being a limiting of um of opposing opportunities to create chances to score but like that's every sport other than actually every sport other than baseball has that right like in hockey when you have the puck the opposing team doesn't have it um, and a team that's mm. like really controlling the puck, you wouldn't necessarily say like they're expressing this as a form of defense. Like I, I think where we're differing is whether it is in the sort of philosophy. Like I think that it's, you know, I guess I tend to think of it more as like a, a byproduct than like truly the explicit aim, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. No, no. I think, I think those are good examples. I think, baseball i think about it because it it does become um it, it is it, it's my hang-up and here i realize that that hang-up is is maybe just just being being expressed in such a way and and also like maybe you could apply it to others but um just the the kind of the the pace of a hockey game and the way a hockey game is is played i mean you have face-offs you have all these opportunities and yes you could you could just hold the puck the whole game but um, you know, you you have opportunities in a way here that that I think it just makes me think more of baseball. But mm. um, I, I, so for me, that's 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 why it's important. But um, you know, we actually haven't talked about the the game itself at all, which Barcelona won. I, I think we alluded <laughs> to that, but we didn't say that. Um, and they won. They scored three goals. Uh, Manchester United was given a goal but if if it if the game existed in today um uh one of the players was offsides when the goal or you know in the build up to the goal so that would have been vard off today so 3 to 1 asterisk um <laughs> but i'd say if anything you know if you're if you're looking for what we were looking for which is like the pinnacle of this style of football um the game was enjoyable but if you're not it was 80 minutes of like, uh, so I will I will highlight some things that slow that the suffocating death for Manchester United. Yeah. The this is how it progressed for the announcers. Um, before the game started, they referred to uh, the way that uh, Barcelona played as arts and crafts. 
Um, somewhere in the first quarter between the 10th and the 16th minutes, they referred to it as pretty patterns. Um, they talked about that's uh, true. The, it is true, but it was not said nicely. <laughs> um, they they mentioned and ulti ultimately I did come around and maybe agreed with this a bit. But in like the 28th minute, uh, they they said never do no with Busquets in terms of his proclivity to fall down. Um, and then they they really kind of came around and accepted this uh, in towards the end of the game. In the 64th minute, they mentioned it is a tiring sport to play without the ball, kind of going to that mm -hmm. defense being, you know, a, a the possession and the suffocation of that. Um, and then in the 84th minute, they finally realized that, oh, wow, we're watching something special because Barcelona has no striker which for an English person is just an unfathomable um, uh, thing. And, and you know, we don't need to spend time on that, but like s seeing this and then under it gives a lot of context to why Pep Guardiola at Manchester City sort of adopting the striker role is so revolutionary in and of itself. Well, we should, we should talk about it a little bit because yeah. that's, that's part of why it is such a, a stark contrast between these two teams. So in, in the Barcelona team, the, the revolutionary thing was taking Lionel Messi, who had started his career as a right winger who liked to cut inside and shoot and putting him as a central forward, a position that in, in years prior to this had been occupied by, um, Samuel Eto, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, um, uh, Ronaldo, the true, the one true Ronaldo, um, Ronaldo Koeman. I don't recall no, him no, playing no. as a striker, but no, no, he didn't. But I learned from this book that it's not Ronald; it's Ronaldo Koeman. It, is, is his name his really Ronaldo? Name it, it, I mean, or it's a typo, but I think it's. I'll, I'll look that up while you're okay. talking, not to not to derail. Um, but so so Messi was the the pinnacle of what is now referred to as the false nine, where he plays in. He sort of starts in the space on the field that would be occupied by a striker, not unlike Wayne Rooney or Javier Hernandez, his opposite numbers. Um. But instead of functioning in the way that a traditional striker does, he is dropping into the midfield, you know, as a, a conduit to help move buildups further up the field as a way to move the defenders around, try to pull uh, either or both of the. Man United's very good central defenders, Rio Ferdinand or Nemanja Vidic with him um, mm -hmm. and, and open up space for his teammates to run in behind. So like that, that's the thing. This is a philosophy that is not just about controlling the ball, but about controlling and manipulating space. And, I I couldn't help but be kind of mesmerized watching that in contrast to United who, you know, 
we were talking about this before we started recording somewhere like two thirds of the way through the game. They had had like two shots. And part of the reason they had so few is that um, Chicharito, Javier Hernandez, literally was constitutionally incapable of staying on side. He was he was so I mean, he was atrocious in this game. It was. It was cool to see him because someone living in the U.S., you you know, U.S. versus Mexico, everything like uh, he was on TV a lot. And I thought of him as a good player. And then I watched him here. I'm like, oh, wow. He just he had no rhythm. They and this None again, they, the whole team was denied any rhythm by the suffocation of not having mm-hmm. the ball. And, and, you know, Mourinho, a contemporary, he often says that. He, he is he is not so much about possession and he says like what do people do when they have the ball they make mistakes and that that is a perfectly viable philosophy i don't enjoy it as much but like it is it is viable i get it but like you know also when you don't have the ball you you can't you can't get a rhythm so i mean yeah i definitely i found that fascinating that is interesting there's there are two there there are negative aspects to both styles but the difference is that the the guardiola heavy possession style the the sort of negative is um if the opponent never has the ball they can't do anything if you don't have the ball you can't score and so it's like it, it is I, the way that wilson put it is like proactive in its execution like that i think is why it's still you know, one of the reasons why it's still cool and enjoyable, whereas the the sort of Jose Mourinho style that you just described is at its core. It's negative about your own players. Mm-hmm. It's a, I don't trust my guys to do the right thing with the ball. So we're instead going to let the opponent have the ball and hope that they make a mistake like ah. and and i think that trust comes out and it, you know to get to, you know to get a little bit into player so i want to read this and then you know transition to how, how that translates so um one thing that was really key for the training and chavi talks about it is is the rondo which is a circle and there are two players in the middle and you're you are in the circle you the outer circle are, are passing it so they don't get it and and it says they he says they taught us how to know who was around us before the ball arrived and to be prepared to use a flick or a cushion or a volley in tenths of a second to keep the circulation of the ball flowing that is so evident in the game and there's so much trust involved i mean it, it so many times for me and and because i wasn't watching the sport then like seeing messi at that time in the way he is almost he's almost dismissive of the ball he's like this you know i'm not i i i am accepting that the ball has come to me but i'm not really ready to do anything with it and it's just these flicks and cushions and it's it's not that it's like a look away it's just like i have other business to attend to let me go offer myself off elsewhere yeah and and that's you know, you think of that on the offensive end, right? he's kind of this this point of this, um, you know, diamond going forward. On the other end, and I express this to you separately, is Sergio Busquets is like one of the most important players. But in this game, I kind of felt like I wanted more. And part of it is, is he is there 
in part for when they are on defense and he helps reestablish what's going on. They establish such suffocating possession in Egypt. But there is one point in, in this for you to launch off is in the 61st, 61st minute, they uh, Manchester United had a really good chance um, in the box. And there is, and it kind of rolls around and Busquets with pressure on him does the calmest two foot pass. And he is on his, you know, basically on his goal line to someone two feet away and just immediately reestablishes calm in possession. And he is not passing it forward. He is doing a very small pass to just reestablish the rhythm. And when I was going back through my notes, I was like, oh, he is the calm. And then they can go with their storm. That's exactly it. I, I was I was going to say, like, it's not so much about his defending. It's that he is like he is the ultimate safety valve and and it's not it it cannot be a coincidence that um he is like a multi-generational barcelona player his father was a goalkeeper who i if i remember correctly played for barcelona um he played in the position that Pep Guardiola played as a player like that is not a coincidence at all, but he Mm -hmm. is like, he is the steam release. Anytime there is pressure building up, everybody knows we can go to him. We can run it through him and he will take the ball calmly, make the right pass. And, and part of why, part of why you wind up wanting more from him in this game is that United basically never puts any pressure on Barcelona past the last, like past the 10 minute mark. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and certainly when they are putting the pressure, they are not ever doing it through the midfield because that's not the kind of player that Michael Carrick ever was and Ryan Giggs is 37 in this game. Um, so, like, this was always going to be a long night for Manchester United. You have a, a, a sort of out of sorts. You, you have a midfield. Like, this is where games are won and lost. This is where the ball is controlled. Like, and And one side has a very old man who is playing out of position and a guy who is a very good passer. Michael Carrick was a very good player, um, but they were not suited to play no. a two on three game against the most perfectly assembled midfield ever. Certainly so, of the modern era, I would say. So to get into like they're not random notes there, but but just like these these observations I had, really what it was in imagining Michael Carrick and and Giggs, these are very British people. Just imagine very British <laughs> yeah. people, like talented, athletic for being British, but very British, <laughs> and they're chasing around. I I wrote it's it's like it's like having a team of Darren Sproles, so just so fundamentally sound, and you're like that guy that guy can't. That guy can't return a kick. That guy can't take a hit. That guy can't catch a pass out of the backfield no, he do or downfield. He could do all of those things and was so fundament- fundamentally sound. And and that's one thing that comes up is like 
all of a sudden Pep Guardiola changes the game such that a 5'7 person who weighs 120 pounds, which like you mentioned with Busquets, that's Pep is a small person and he did not play, you know, until uh, whoever the coach was at the time, like pulled him out because they thought he was too small. He was too slight. And it's like, no, he is. He is. Iniesta. Well, no, no, no. That well, Pep is six feet tall, right? I don't think he's well, he is not. He's not like strong. That's true. So there was there was. Because he was slight, mm-hmm. he did not play on the the reserve or junior team or whatever until I think it was Cruyff said, no, 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 this guy is really good. He's going to play. Um, but an extension of that is like you, all these people are quite small, and that's that's a change. You know, Carrick and Giggs are big. They are much bigger than them. And besides Piquet and um, Busquets, everybody is very short and, and mm-hmm. is, is slight, but Darren Sproles, just totally <laughs> sound. Um, is that? I mean that that's what that's what really resonated yeah, with me. That's well. not who I would have thought of for that. But yeah, like I, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I was trying to think of like a point. Darren Sproles uh, like is also low guard. key thick. Yeah. Well, I mean, these people run a lot, but yeah. I'm also glad that you to, to to dive into more just observations. But like, uh, if there's someone whose jersey I wanted to buy after this this game and i remember not liking him in part because of the world cup for no particular reason but um iniesta is that was my favorite person to watch oh my god just 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 sublime um really feels like it's like that's i kind of wish that was what like christian erickson was but he will never he will never be that but like similar similar or, or even i really despise bruno fernandez but like that's that's in a way like what what they're trying to attain well, this is and and this is why this midfield is so perfectly assembled. You have Busquets, who is, you know, he's the most defensively minded of the bunch, but he's also, you know, he is the calm. Chavi is the general. He is yes. the the metronome to to use a a sort of popular term. Um, he is the one who is like moving the ball around always. Iniesta is the wizard. He more than Messi in this game, he was the guy who said, "No, I want the ball and I want to go run at people." Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, we were on a very similar brainwave here because he, he was the most mesmerizing of all of them. Um, I. I watched this game in the context, at least partially in the context of a video I saw a while back. I think Alex Ferguson put out a book in the last couple of years. And as part of the, you know, the media tour, he did an interview with Gary Neville, who was a long a career Manchester United player. Uh, part of their sort of greatest generation of homegrown players uh, and is now a a pundit. Um, Mm. And Ferguson said something that I thought was fascinating. He said that he thought, he thought about um, coming out for the second half with Jisung Park man marking Lionel Messi and that if he had done that 
he believed that United would have won the game. Yeah. I think, I, I think that think is he, fallacious. I he he might have said that in about the I've read that before. I wasn't sure if he was meaning the 2009 game or this one, but um Oh, I guess he, it, I maybe he was talking about 2009. But but if you watch this game with that in mind, the same could apply cuz he as I read, he talked about not being able to stop Messi and there were basically I, I mean, I saw two players who who had an idea of this, which was was Park and, and Vidic were the only ones who were like really like, oh, I'm trying so hard to stop this, but this is ensemble and had a lot of successful tackles. Um, whereas Valencia just tried to to kill people and finally <laughs> got a card in the uh, I don't know, like the last quarter of the game. Um, but but yeah, no, that that's that was the key. And he couldn't do it even though he had ideas of how to do it there was there was a moment in the 25th minute in, in just the 25th minute where uh ferguson uh he he comes down out of the stands and like they have these little gates at the bottom and he pushes the gate open and you can tell he's realized he's like this is it we are we are screwed from here if something doesn't change and it doesn't like it it doesn't change yeah i i have in my notes somewhere like i, I obviously watched this game before like i know how it ends but just like as as it's going as they're coming back out for the second half i made a note somewhere that's like oh it should have been obvious to everyone there that if united went down again in the second half they were toast it's absolutely over because Mm -hmm. they also didn't have the depth to to actually change the game you know, Paul Scholes was one of the great midfielders of his generation, but like he came through at the same time as Giggs and Gary Neville, who is no longer playing at this point, I believe. Um, he is very old uh, by by footballer standards. Uh, there are no the only like out and out forward that was available as a sub was Michael Owen, who was very injury prone on his fourth club, close to winding down his career. Um, they they made specific reference at one point to uh, Dimitar Berbatov not even sitting, you know, in the area with the subs. And as I, I forgot to go back and, and look before this, but like, God, why wasn't he playing? Uh, I think they said something like he had been sick or or something. Okay. I, I think I caught that and I wasn't sure. I mean, one of the people they did bring in was Nani, who was they mentioned as they're mentioning it said uh, Man United's P- players player of the year. And then he he is immediately responsible for the the David via goal that is is the the crusher. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just there was you watch games sometimes and you're like, well, it's, it's close and like they get their rhythm and everything, but it really was after the 10th minute. Um, and, and there was, there was a passage of play in the ninth minute where, uh, Barcelona had their first series. We're like, Oh, this is, this is how their game works. And there was a nearly own goal by PK in the 10th minute. And then that was it. I mean, that was really it. Mm -hmm. And so I, it was, I knew the result, but I think if I had been watching that, it would have never been in doubt because you just going back to the idea of, you know, whether it's thinking of football like baseball or or having a solid running game is like the if you if you can treat your offense as a way to attack and a way to defend, 
you know, and, and you're able to establish that, there's really no, there's no way to, to stop it in, in, in some ways. Cause at best, at best, they are not going to, to make their chances. But if you are completely denied and you're always having to defend, um, yeah, that's kind of where it is. So I don't, I don't want to spend too much more time on this because we've already been talking about it for like yeah. forty-five minutes. But yeah, I can, I can transition to my my stupid stuff observations if if we need. Well, to. I just, I, I'm interested that in this sort of in the decade or so since this, you know, the the, um, the the counter revolution, the backlash to to the sort of Guardiola style, if you will is not I think it's notable that it's not a wider adoption of Mourinho style tactics it's a very different it, it's sort of the same idea of controlling the ball is the important thing but refracted slightly through German sensibilities yeah. and it becomes with like Jurgen Klopp when he is at Dortmund and the Red Bull system, like that is sort of a tweaking of this idea where in some ways winning the ball is the most important thing because that is you're introducing like a chaos moment for your opponent where mm -hmm. they are scrambling. You have put yourself on the front foot, ideally in their half um, yeah. and that is something that is very hard to defend, you know, because you are having to make these rapid transitions from state to state. And that's like, it's some of the same ideas, but it's, it is expressed in a very different way. Yeah. And, and I think that that's maybe that for me, that's kind of the, the purity of the pep philosophy is it's, it's almost impractical in that. <laughs> You know, I, I think he's he's influenced in part by uh, Bielsa, and and you know he I know Bielsa talks about like it's not really impro improvisation because and somewhere uh, I've read recently it might have been in here, but like it's that you're in situations and you're an actor playing a, a part and you've seen all the different permutations already, like you practice it, you see all the different permutations, so you react, and so. They're reacting and saying, how do I get the ball back? There's a practicality of this, this German. It's like, I am accepting that I will lose the ball. What Pep is saying is like, why do I have to make that assumption? <laughs> and I think that that's like, that is so cool. It's like, this reaction has been like this pragmatic, real, uh, uh, rational, realist thing. But it's still in the vein of like, our ideal is to always have possession. But if we assume that we lose it, how do we respond to that in a way that minimizes that as much as possible mm -hmm. so that we don't have to, that we maintain, we may maintain our position even without possession. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, I, the, the purity I, of the philosophy is yeah. fun. It's a very, that is a very like Catalonian kind of separatist sort of thing, like a club who's, who's yeah. famous, uh, you know, historically famous, you know, for being the the sort of resisting army against Real Madrid, the preferred club of the Generalissimo. Yeah, the the bull is the symbol of Spain, not of Catalonia, 
which is why in 2007, separatists destroyed the last Toto de Osborne, the huge silhouette statues that once advertised Sherry that had remained in the region. They are the bullfighter. That is their their kind of archetype. So the rest of Spain is the bull. And they are like, <laughs> no, no, you can't touch us. You cannot possess us. But um, yeah, I, I've that that's, yeah, it's, it, it is it does become philosophical and i think that that's why this game is compelling to me yeah yeah um uh but i if, if i may some other reasons why it's compelling um this is really just what people look like and is maybe unfair so i think wayne rooney could have been in the second season of the wire because he looks like a stevedore who is marking down the weeks he has left to Till retirement and i should say he's 25 in this game he is younger than lebron he's always looked like jeff odom or excuse me greg odin old um also and pedro still does this the fact that he's still doing it is incredible but he runs like a lawn flamingo like just the way you know sometimes they have the, the little uh the little uh, fan things or, or windmill aspects to them. And uh, so Lon Flamingo and his just arms like flailing out. It's like he is small, but they almost look too large. Uh, and um, the last is Carlos Puyol came in and I immediately thought of, uh, have you ever seen the the documentary, This is Anvil? Um, no. Anyways, if you look up Lips Kudlow, K-U-D-L-O-W, um, you will see that, that they are the same person. So he might actually also be a, uh, a, like a, a hair metal rocker that, that had a very compelling documentary made about him, but yeah, <laughs> just, um, and, uh, oh, I was, I was also, I was reminded, uh, Vandersar just had a, uh, uh, an unfortunate, um, yeah. uh, health episode in like, it's it's interesting that he was at Manchester United for such a long time and was such like a, a you know a, an ambassador of the club and um, in the year since they've only had one goalkeeper in in uh, David De Gea um, and so it was interesting seeing the end of that era and I was reminded that he just had his his health episode so I hope he's doing okay yeah oh and speaking of health episodes we haven't talked at all in this discussion about the fact that Eric Abadal played this game. 10 weeks out from having a fucking tumor removed from his liver. He was, he was amazing. He just was, <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely saw like the, the kind of, uh, the fullback, the way that Pep uses them in him as like just the prototypical in the same way Busquets felt like the proto Rodri in this game. And I was like, wow, this, you know, this guy's playing amazing. Also, he had a tumor, you know, yeah. some weeks ago. It was, it was one of the, like the all time, sort of heart shiver moments when you realize as they're going up to get the trophy in the stands, uh, it was a chilling moment uh, when I spotted uh, Boris Johnson in in oh, the wow. area, um, as well as corrupt-ass Michelle Platini. <laughs> um well, he was the head of UEFA at the time, so he was the mm -hmm. one handing out the medals and the trophies. Uh, but but when you notice that Puyol has removed the captain's armband and put it on Eric Abidal, so he is the first oh. to lift the trophy. That's cool. I did yeah. not. I did not watch that. Far, oh man, it's cool. awesome. Um, and I That's... I knew to watch for that because 
Puyol is one of the the figures that gets written about in a, a book, like a leadership book called The Captain Class, um, mm-hmm. which we don't need to spend time on. Uh, but basically, you know, the best leaders in sports history are, are kind of iconoclasts who have some who truly do have some qualities that set them apart from the rest of their teammates. And and so like I, I, I was sort of attuned for that because of, of reading that book. Um, uh, yeah, let's end on this. Uh, how sad is it to know that um, multiple players who were involved in this incredible game uh, have uh, either are currently or have already played in MLS? Um, I mean, that's what MLS is for. Some of them even coach MLS teams. Exactly. Now, and they are younger than LeBron James, <laughs> which is which is Wayne Rooney. Um, uh, all right. Let's do Pierce Asari. Yeah. Uh, so very quickly, say you get a furniture delivered and you were told by the, the furniture place in the delivery agents. Oh, this is really heavy. This this weighs well over 200 pounds. Like two people can't move it. And you you get it inside your house and you're waiting for other people to come to your house to help you move it. What you don't do is you never, within reason, try to lift it up yourself, like unbox it and figure out what you can lift up. So this past weekend, I finally, after what I believe was almost two months, moved a very large piece of furniture, like a sideboard, that was totally easy for two people to move um because i had you know trusted without verifying uh what what these these other individuals who you know were subject matter experts in the field uh had told me so um you know don't don't discount those warnings but if you get furniture try moving it so that it doesn't sit forever (laughs) all right um okay uh, obviously no trivia today since it's just you and me, but, uh, I do have a big idea and I've, I've been excited to share this one with you all week. Uh, I listened to another sort of podcast mini series from, uh, a show called articles of interest, mm-hmm. which is, <clears throat> uh, started as a spinoff of 99% invisible, which is like a podcast about like hidden design elements in everyday life and the producer of the show a woman named avery truffleman um wanted to focus on how this touches clothing um i think we may have talked about this once before because she did a a episode about pockets um and this was at the peak of your desire to research pockets um anyway there was a she did a a season called uh american ivy about ivy league style and its sort of origins and um and how it has been one of the steadily recurring sort of cyclical styles in American culture. She also talks about how the style spread out to Japan 
And the reason I was so interested in this is because the book Take Ivy is one of the sort of central topics of the podcast. Uh, and I learned that, um, you know, part of the genesis of the book is that this style is starting to take off in Japan, but the authority, like the literal police don't really understand that it's a thing that has roots in other places. They think that all of these young people in, uh, like in the Ginza, like in the fancy shopping district are dressing like kind of disheveled vagrants. And so they're <laughs> literally, they're going to start arresting people. <coughs> Excuse me. And this guy, uh, Kensuke Ishizu, who is a menswear seller is like, is essentially putting this together as sort of propaganda marketing material to make it clear that no, this actually is a real style uh, that is popular in sort of elite American circles. <laughs> um, so I thought you would appreciate that. Um, that, yeah, that's that's a tremendous that's a tremendous story. It's like, no, this this was done to save the children, you know, in many ways. Yeah. And there's so there's also a, a sort of a mini arc in there about um, how Ralph Lauren sort of comes in and <clears throat> uh, takes the the mantle from Brooks Brothers in, in many ways, uh, but also about the sort of subculture of essentially uh, polo thieves in New York. Mm -hmm. um, so that that was a cool thing too. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll throw a link in the in the show notes. But very yeah, cool. the American Ivy season of Articles of Interest, very cool. Um, all right, that finally, mercifully, is the end of the show. You can find us at our home on the web www.prettyokpod.com, or you can subscribe to the show feed on your podcast app of choice. We'll be back next week to talk about something else. Until then, I'm Sean. I'm Pierce. Thanks for listening.